welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. Isham invites you to log on, listen, and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Isham Nation, welcome to the Process This Podcast. This is episode number 38. You know, I'm glad to be here with you today because today we're talking to Betty McGinty about high-level disinfection. Now, you might be doing high-level disinfection in SPD already, but if you're not, you might want to tune into this episode and see how you can be involved with high-level disinfection. Now, if you have not thought about registering for the Isham Annual Conference and Expo, well, now's the time to start planning. Expect to reconnect. Now, the conference is a great place for reuniting with old friends and networking with new ones. Well, we've all missed those face-to-face connections, and, you know, we're really just eager to get back to some sort of normalcy. So if you're like me and you've missed those face-to-face connections, join me in Columbus, Ohio, October 9th through the 11th, or the 12th through the 14th, to reconnect with peers, network with fellow participants, Discuss best practices with industry experts. So plan your connections today. If you've listened to the past few shows, then you've heard me talk about Columbus, Ohio, our next conference host city. So, so far we've talked about some interesting places in Columbus to go and visit. Two separate episodes, we've talked about food. And don't worry, I love food, and so there's going to be more. But today on the show, we're talking about some of the spirits of the city, some of the most haunted places in Columbus. Now, depending on how you feel, these are either places to explore or places to avoid. Now, credit for this information goes to Mariah West of the City Pulse. So first on our list, and this is in no particular order, is the Ohio State House. The historical Ohio State House is notorious for its spirits. Now, this was built in what was once a Civil War hospital using prison labor. Its paranormal entities include past soldiers, prisoners that died on site during construction of the building, and a weeping lady in gray. And there are also former lawmakers, including a Tom Bateman. Now he is said to have caused flickering lights and cold air every day at 5 p.m. in what was once his old office. But the most famous ghost on this site, however, is that of Abraham Lincoln, who has been reported in sightings for over a hundred years, often in a dance with the former governor Solomon Chase's daughter, Kate. Kind of cool and kind of creepy all at the same time. Now, next on our list is the Harrison House Bed and Breakfast, located in the historical Victorian village. The house is a visually stunning three-story Harrison House, which currently operates as a bed and breakfast. Now, throughout the history of the home, many of the residents have come and gone at a high turnover rate, possibly because of the home's reported hauntings, in addition to disappearing items, unexplained sounds and smells, doors that open on their own, 
and body-shaped indentations on empty beds. Encounters have also included regular apparition sightings. Now these include a young boy, a cigarette-smoking old man, and more who seem to be just visiting. Now these sightings have led some to believe that the home operates on some sort of hub or some sort of portal to the spiritual world. So you might consider this lovely bed and breakfast as an alternative to the conference hotel. And if you do, I want to hear about it. So Mirror Lake. Mirror Lake is nestled in the heart of the Ohio State University Oval. Mirror Lake is a popular haunt for both current students and a few spirits of those from the past. Now there are several particular entities known to linger at the site. One known as the Lady of the Lake, the widowed wife of an OSU professor who has been seen gliding across the water during late night and early morning hours. Other spirits include a student who drowned there in the 1960s and is said to be still heard splashing the water and a jogger who was killed near the area can be reportedly seen running while looking over his shoulder and creating a cold breeze as he passes. Now next on our spirit list is the Kelton House Museum. Now the Discovery District's Kelton House Museum and Garden was once inhabited by an active abolitionist Kelton family who made the home an underground railroad stop in the 1800s. It is said that several members of the Kelton family still haunt the home, with frequent reports of apparitions in the form of multiple family members. There are also unexplained voices and whispers, disappearing items, and rearranged furniture. The Thurber House is next on the list. Now serving as a literary center, downtown's Thurber House was once home to writer and cartoonist James Thurber in the 1900s. During his residency, Thurber reported several paranormal encounters, even describing one in his humorous story, The Night the Ghost Got In. Still to this day, incidences of footsteps, shadowy figures, flying books have been reported at the house. These are thought to be caused by the lingering spirits of the past resident who shot himself after catching his unfaithful wife or possibly the souls of deceased patients from the nearby Central Ohio Lunatic Asylum, which burned down in 1868. Well, that's just creepy. Next on our list is the Green Lawn Cemetery. Well, no surprise here. But if you're a night owl and looking for something to do, some late night thrills at the conference, the cemetery is home to over 150,000 burials, across 360 acres. The Green Lawn Cemetery is the second largest in Ohio, so it's almost a given that spiritual activity has been reported here. Well, since 1848, it has served as a final resting place for uh, well-known Columbusites named Goodall, Battier, Huntington, and Lazarus, plus past governors and politicians. There are several graves here that are said to be haunted, including the Gay Mausoleum and the Hayden Mausoleum. Now, at these mausoleums, it's said that if you knock on the door, then it's quite possible that you're going to receive a knock back from inside in response. Nope, not going to do that. 
Well, last but certainly not least in our spirits from Columbus is the Elevator Brewery. Downtown's Elevator Brewery has several different names over the past years, but one ghostly spirit has remained throughout the changes. Now, the haunt story originates with a notorious womanizer, a colonist who was stabbed outside the pub by an ex-lover one wintry night in the 1900s. And until it was recently replaced, the bar's giant door clock had been stuck at 10.05. Now, this is the exact time of the incident. Patrons have also reported seeing sightings of the Colonial in the building and mysterious footprints appearing outside the bar during a fresh snowfall. So if you're a ghost hunter or just interested in these fascinating places and interesting stories, there are several places for you to visit when your conference day is finished in Ohio. Since we're talking about ghost stories and spooky places, I wanted to share a creepy story with you. So I worked for a hospital in the Denver metro area, and this particular facility was associated with the medical school, and they shared the campus together essentially. Well, on this medical school campus was an old army hospital. It was an eight-story hospital, quite unique from the modern buildings that surround it. The hospital was originally named Army Hospital 21. Uh, now the hospital building is called the Fitzsimmons Building in honor of Lieutenant William T. Fitzsimmons, who was the first American medical officer killed in World War I. Now, uh, everybody who works there uh, refers to this building as actually Building 500. So that's the common name if you work around there. Building 500 used to be the center of the army base there. Now, this, this building, you know, it's seen a lot of action, right? So from Pearl Harbor, both World Wars, Korea, Vietnam War, and the Gulf Wars, been in operation for over 100 years. So Building 500, the building right now is used as part of the medical school. So when you walk into building 500, it is beautifully decorated. It's it's all in marble. They have a really cool staircases. You know, you can tell it's a blast from the past, right? Now on any other day, building 500 is just a normal place of work for the medical school. Uh, it's a convenient place to drop off mail packages. I've heard several creepy ghost stories about building 500. So uh, me and a couple of my colleagues decided, you know, we wanted to check out this building and we wanted to see the basement in particular, you know, really see if we could go down there and see the old morgue in building 500. Now the access to the basement in building 500 was restricted to really those folks who had that access or who belonged down there. But uh, when you would get into the elevator, you know, you couldn't, you had to have a special key, right? You couldn't just go down to the basement or the other lower levels. Now, when you got into the elevator and there was only really one elevator in this building, you had to have a special key to get into the basement. You couldn't just access it. Well, after several failed attempts, we found ourselves on the second floor in this weird back stairwell. And it, it just so happens that as we descended down from that second floor, somebody forgot to close the basement door uh, from that stairwell. And so we, we got access to the basement. And as we entered the basement, it was exactly how I thought it would be, right? We ended up in this long hallway and the walls were that white cinder block. And no lie, 
and I'm not making this up, every other light in the ceiling was flickering on and off. Like, like it hadn't been changed in years and it desperately needed one of those lights to be changed. But all the way down the hallway were these flickering lights. So super creepy. Well, two steps into that hallway and we looked at each other and we were like, nope, we're not doing this. We're out of here. Only one problem. The door behind us shut and we didn't have access to that door. You had to have a key access. So we frantically were walking down this hallway looking for a way out. And we finally, we finally found the one elevator, right? So we took a chance and we, we got in the elevator. Again, lights are flashing off and on and it was creeping us out. Like, like any minute somebody was going to come up behind us and just hack us to pieces, right? It was that sort of creepiness. Well, so the elevator door slowly opened, and the, but we could hear voices, right? There were voices all around us, but we couldn't see anything. So we, we pushed the elevator button, hoping that, you know, it would take us up. As the elevator door slowly closed, you could faintly make out, you know, through the flickering lights, the sign on the far door that said Hospital Morgue. Well, we reached the first floor. We were relieved that we didn't get hacked to pieces, although that it might have made for a better story. But, you know, was it haunted? I don't know. It was probably just our overactive imaginations, you know, but either way, it was a crazy experience. Now, I tell you all that because I know that there are some third shifters out there in the Isham Nation that have experienced some unusual things in the middle of the night. You know, I know you guys have stories of the unexplained happening while you're working, you know, in the basement, because usually we're sterile processing. It's usually in the basement, right? You know, so I know you guys have some good stories to tell me. I want to hear some of your creepy third shift uh, adventures. So uh, what, I, what I want you guys to do is email me at podcast at isham.org. It's podcast at isham.org. And tell me your tale from the third shift. I want to hear from you. You know, if it's good, you know, I'll, I'll contact you and we'll get you on the show and have you tell your story. So uh, let me know your tales from the third shift, your creepy uh, stories that I know you guys have. Today, our guest speaker is Betty McGinty. Now, Betty is an RN, CGRN, and a CER, so she's one of our own Isham Nation. She has practiced nursing for four decades, with many of those years involved in the field of gastroenterology and with over three decades serving in management. She has a Master's of Science in Health Service Administration and maintains the CGRN and the CER, the Certified Endoscope Reprocessor Certifications. She has been a member of SGNA since 1987 and has been active in the association through committee involvement, provides presentations, and served as the national president from 2013 to 2014. She is a member of ISHA. She is a member of AMI ST Working Group 84. She participates in the development of ST91 and TIR99. Now, prior to coming to Boston Scientific Corporation in 2020 as a fellow in professional education services, she was employed at Northside Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia as a high-level disinfection safety and quality specialist. 
In this role, she was responsible for oversight of processing and high-level disinfection at the system level. Thank you, Betty, for joining me today. And thank you, John, for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Prior to working for Boston Scientific, you worked as a high-level disinfection safety and quality director at a healthcare facility. Now, this is a unique position. Can you talk about the position and really some of your responsibilities? Oh, yes. It was a unique position at the time, and it's actually now grown to be a position that other organizations have embraced. I was responsible for high-level disinfection in its entirety for the health system. Now, that included three hospitals, as well as multiple outpatient facilities. It basically involved every arena where the processing modality was high-level disinfection. I had oversight for standardization of policies and procedures, as well as basic high-level disinfection education, competency, and audit assessment tools. I was the go-to for high-level disinfection. I also had the oversight for the processing of all devices. Now, that included point-of-care treatment, cleaning, visualization, and other cleaning verification processes. It also included transportation of soiled and disinfected devices, storage, labeling systems, and intervals of processing unused devices. I collected data on ATP scores, adenosine triphosphate, as well as surveillance scores, which was monitoring for post-high-level disinfection gram-negative organisms on scopes and probes. I trended this and I reported it to the Infection Prevention Committee twice every year. So when we think about high-level disinfection, we mainly think about endoscopes. Can you describe some of the other areas that you mentioned that used high-level disinfection? Oh yes, other areas included, for example, radiology and women's services areas. They had ultrasound probes. Um, other devices, even in the GI arena, uh, besides the scopes, included accessories such as bite blocks and air water channel adapters, dilators, probes, water bottles, tubing, and even more. Pulmonary function clinics had portions of their reusable devices that required high-level disinfection. And respiratory therapy also had portions of breathing circuits requiring such. Now, some of your responsibilities centered around education and performing in-house audits or tracers, you know, similar to the actual surveys that we go through. Can you talk mm -hmm. about some of those most common findings in those areas that performed high-level disinfection? Oh, sure. Uh, there were chemical test strips that either had inaccurate or absent expiration dates. Uh, there was um, at times a failure to follow or even a lack of knowledge of the manufacturer's instructions for use for processing. There was a lack of knowledge of that facility selection of which evidence-based practice they were gonna follow and the details that that entailed. And inexact or no process to document all the processing steps, for example, for the endoscopes. And finally, lack of knowledge regarding specific chemical contact time, rinsing time, temperature ranges. 
Education is really important. It's big when it comes to high-level disinfection. How did you go about educating all of these folks from different areas and different backgrounds in sterile processing, like what you mentioned, imaging and women's services and clinics? Sure. So first of all, I developed a generic high-level disinfection one-hour in-person class that was required for all of those who either performed high-level disinfection or also for their direct supervisors to attend so that everybody understood what they were doing and what they were expected to be doing. And then for each year to follow, I developed a computer-based learning offering that they were required to attend virtually and to pass a post-test. Did you ever run into resistance from uh, these different clinical areas, meaning that different areas or organizational standards like ultrasound society? And, and I know at one point uh, they claimed that you could wash ultrasound probes with dishwashing soap that you use at home. You know, it was acceptable <laughs> in their organization. Whereas, you know, in sterile processing, we use Amy standards, uh, recommendations, you know, follow those manufacturers instructions. Exactly. Yes. I found it a bit. I mean, I thought it was a joke at first when I found it and um, they actually had been told such. And so what I would do with this situation, what I would gently guide them back to a higher standard of the evidence-based guidelines. And like you say, the Amy standards, as well as the manufacturer's instructions for use. And all of this was vetted and supported by our infection prevention committee at our facilities. A majority of, uh, of the listeners to this show probably work in sterile processing. Can you explain to our listeners why it's so important that everyone have the knowledge or be involved in high-level disinfection? Oh, for sure. You know, some sterile processing department staff may actually, actually already perform high-level disinfection, either in their SPD or they may travel over to the GI arena and perform high-level disinfection. Um, so knowledge of this practice is important to them. It's important for anyone who processes instruments to understand the difference between the two processing modalities, being sterilization and high-level disinfection, whereas the goal of sterilization is to kill all microorganisms. And for high-level disinfection, you know, the, the object is to kill all microorganisms, but doesn't have the capacity to kill all the spores. Um, and so it's important for them to understand what cases would there be when high-level disinfection might be selected over sterilization, such as if they have heat-sensitive devices, like certain endoscopes. Centralizing high-level disinfection into the sterile processing department is something that a lot of healthcare facilities have either undergone or uh, in the process or really considering. Can you talk about some of the pros and cons of making this move? Sure. You know, the main pro for centralization of anything is standardization of processes. Mm -hmm. It can offer some economic advantages too, uh, such as regarding chemicals that are used. For just an example, and that's an opportunity to ensure competency so that you've got dedicated staff who maintain competency in part by performing those processes consistently so they don't have to keep, you know, relearning how to how to do things. Mm -hmm. Now on the con side, the one the main one is that it may be seen as a threat to the departments that own 
the scopes, for example, or other instruments, because they don't have control. And they may fear having to wait on their processed instruments, for an example. Also, there are certain areas like radiology and imaging and the women's clinics that have these probes where the logistics really favor on-site processing Mm -hmm. with approved automated devices. So that would be a consideration of a hybrid model. Now, there continues to be a need, however, to have someone accountable for the standardization of all the processes at all the locations. So when we talk about centralizing, how do you address the problem of transportation to and from a sterile processing department? Well, you know, processes definitely have to be established through the facility policy and procedure, through the AMI standards and regulatory bodies uh, to include the appropriate transportation of devices to and from the facility in some cases, like that could be from physicians' offices or outside clinics. And then internally, there need to be processes in place for interdepartmental transport of soiled and processed devices. It requires a huge amount of communication. Uh, There needs to be, of course, an avenue to ensure that the point of care treatment, um, which includes Mm pre-cleaning, is performed promptly by the users following the procedure completion and that these details that include when the procedure ended and when the point of care treatment began is communicated either manually like on a paper or a label or electronically and included in the process for all device transportation would be transport containers and labeling. So there's quite a bit that is involved in that. So last question, Betty, what advice would you give to somebody who has recently found themselves responsible for high-level disinfection, rather uh, if that's in the sterile processing department from centralization or outside the sterile processing through those different clinical areas? Sure, they need to look for opportunities to become educated on high-level disinfection. This can be done through educational offerings that societies like ISHM and AORN, SGNA, or APIC may offer. So be on the lookout for those. There are also documents from the CDC that provide direction and AMI standards. And also, you may find access to others, such as people like myself, who had experience in the role and can offer you direction. I truly believe we all learn from one another. Well, Betty, it was a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you for sharing with us. And thank you so much for having me. So glad to be here. Thank you, Betty, for speaking with us today. Ishin Nation, episode 38 is in the books. Thanks for listening to the show. To receive the CE for this episode, simply click on the link in the episode notes, fill out the required information, and select the code BUILDING500. Again, the code for this episode is BUILDING500. Hey, and good news, if you didn't know this, when you fill out this information for the CE and you guess that correct code of BUILDING500, this CE will automatically be entered into your Ishim account if you have one with Ishim. So if you don't have an account with Ishim, go ahead and get one. So the CE will automatically be entered in your account. Now, remember, 
These episodes, the podcast episodes, they're always on the 1st and 15th of every month. Each episode's on demand, so when you're ready for us, we'll be there for you. Before I let you go today, and since we talked about some creepy stuff at the beginning of the show, I wanted to share one last thing with you. When I record the different segments of the show, sometimes I will record audio either really late at night or early in the morning. And I do this occasionally because I can get some better sound quality, meaning no outside noises. And I have dogs and they often interfere with the audio. When I recorded the Spirits and the Haunted Places in Columbus audio, I got up at like two in the morning. Now, I didn't plan on getting up so early, but, you know, it just so happens that I I couldn't sleep that night. Uh, So I got up early and I, I just took advantage of the situation. Well, it turned out that after I recorded the segment, I wanted to add some more to it. So I ended up recording the entire segment a few days later. Now, when I went to edit the audio, one of the first things that I do is called a noise reduction. And that essentially allows me to get rid of any background noise, kind of like the heater running. So when the heater runs and you hear it on the audio, it, it makes a humming noise, right? So that allows me to get rid of those background noises. So I was able to get rid of that. Sometimes also when I record, I will intentionally leave blank spaces in the recording. And what happens is I'll usually turn a page or I'll readjust my chair uh, or get a drink or something, something. And I'll do it then so it doesn't interfere with the voice audio. So I take these little breaks during the recording, but it, it continuously records. But during several of these these blank spots, these intentionally left spots that I, I, I leave, uh, I notice some weird movement in the audio track. Now, you couldn't hear it because it was so faint. And I had done that noise reduction. You could barely hear anything. Uh, So I amplified it. Uh, I amplified the audio track in those sections by about 30 decibels, which is quite a bit. And this is what I heard. Now, to preface this, you're going to hear some breath sounds, and that's me. So just ignore that. But here you go. This is what I heard when I really increased that volume in the track. Now, do you hear that pulsating? Now, listen to it again. Man, that is so weird and creepy. Now, this goes on uh, randomly throughout that audio track, right? Now, about halfway through, when I was editing this segment, I realized this was that first recording that I did at 2 in the morning, right? This was the very first one that I woke up and I, I recorded it. But I I didn't want to use that one, but I I named them the same and I accidentally picked the wrong one. So I got this weird, creepy recording. And I haven't heard that type of noise or anything like it, you know, in the 38 podcasts that I've done. And, you know, I've done hundreds of different segments in those podcasts. So super, super duper creepy, right? So again, let me know your story. If you have some kind of creepy story, uh, just email me podcastedition.org. And as always, stay classy, Isham Nation, and we'll see you next time.